It's a joy to welcome you to our midweek Bible study and our service of singing and fellowship. The scripture that relates to the Bible study tonight is out of 1 Peter chapter number 4. I'm reading from my New American Standard Translation. We'll introduce the reading with two verses, uh, verse number 7 and 11, and then through the end of the chapter. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse number seven, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or as a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is sinned, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Wonderful passage from the word of God. All right, tonight we're going to be continuing our study of the thriving church. And if you haven't picked up a copy of this book, you can get it on Amazon. I recommend it, uh, especially if you're a pastor and you're watching from another place. It's a really good book, a good guide on how to help your church to thrive and to grow. And I'm really enjoying it. I hope that you are as well. We're tonight in the Lesson 6, which is Chapter 6 of the book, with some modifications, of course, that every preacher takes with everything he reads. But we're going to start off by reading in Ephesians Chapter 4. We'll get back to that passage uh, in, in First Peter later on tonight. But tonight we're going to be talking about every pastor equipping. Last week we talked about the gifts that God gives to the church. And, and we were speaking primarily just kind of touched on the topic of spiritual gifts that you can look at in Romans chapter 12 and First Corinthians chapter 12. But tonight the focus is going to be on the people who are gifts to the local church. And uh, I want you to see these, see these, uh, these very special people whom God has given to help a church to become all that God wants it to be. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7 is where we're going to start. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, every one of us has been given a spiritual gift. And it's, it, and it's, uh, it's because of the grace of God that was given to us. But then in verse 11, beyond the spiritual gifts that each one of us as individuals have, it talks about people who are gifts to the church. Verse 11, and he gave some as apostles, 
and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. And so tonight we're going to be looking at those, uh, those people who have been given to the church. In 1 Peter chapter 4, where Pastor was reading earlier on in verses 10 and 11, it talks about the ver that it basically takes all the spiritual gifts and divides them up into two major categories, which we discussed a little bit last week. And those ba basic categories are proclaiming, and then there's advancing. And all of us have a gift that fits within those two major categories of spiritual gifts. But let's take a look at this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And then verse 11 talks about the proclaimers. Whoever speaks is to do, it, do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. So it's talking about proclaimers that were in those verse, that verse. And then it goes on and says, whoever serves, those are the advancers of the gospel, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. And the reason for both of these categories is so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, let's go back to those two major categories, proclaiming or speaking. Some of us have been given a, uh, a, a natural, I think Pastor Kelly calls it the gift of gab. Uh, it's an ability to be able to stand up and speak and, and to declare what God has said in a way that people can understand it. Uh, and so that it is, a, it is understood so that people are taught and trained the word of God. And then there are those who are involved in the advancing or the serving aspect of things. Now, we all are supposed to serve, but some of us may not be able to get up and speak in front of other people, but we can find something that we can do in our local church to help advance the cause of Christ. And so those are the basic things that we're doing. Again, the whole purpose behind these gifts that we're given, whether it's speaking or whether it's serving, is so that God is glorified and so that the church is built up and we're to do our part to collaborate for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the advancement of the church. You remember the four questions that, that have been kind of driving our entire study. Uh, the four questions are what is growth and what causes growth? That's the second one. The third, am I helping or hindering in my church's growth? That's something each one of us needs to ask ourselves. And four, how can I help make my church a growing body? Each one of us has a responsibility in our local church to participate in the growth of the thriving of that church. And your gift is needed, whatever that is, whether it's speaking or serving, whether it's proclaiming or being a part of the advancement team in other ways. Ephesians 4, 7, again, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ has given you something that he wants you to use in the local church. Now, tonight we're going to be looking at basically those who are the proclaimers or the the ones who are the speakers. And we see these categories broken down in Ephesians chapter 4 into establishers and then equippers. And then we see that it, it is all for the, 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 the purpose of equipping the saints to be involved. And that's the other people in the church, the establishers. These are the apostles and the prophets. And then there are the equippers, who we call the pastor teachers. And then we have the equipped saints. That's the congregation in a local church. 
Uh, and so let's look at those, uh, basically those speakers first here. The, uh, the ones who are the proclaimers. The establishers are the apostles. They're the kind of the cornerstone upon which the church was built. Of course, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, but the apostles are the foundation of all the churches. They began way back in the book of Acts and in, in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says, Christ gave some as apostles. And we know there that Jesus handpicked 12 men uh, to serve in that role. He gave them an official title and he gave them responsibilities to fulfill. In Luke chapter 6, you can see when these men were called out to become the first 12 apostles. He went off to the mountain to pray, and uh, if he, Luke chapter 6 and verse 12, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God, and when, he, when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, and then Peter, and J Andrew, James, and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, uh, Simon, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot. Those names are listed there in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. You can take a look at that. And then later on, uh, after Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus, and then he felt the guilt and remorse for what he'd done and went out and hanged himself, uh, the apostles and the church got together there in Acts chapter 1, and there they chose uh, a replacement for Judas. In Acts chapter 1, verses 23 to 26, it says they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all men, show which of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell for to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Now often they would cast a lot, even in the Old Testament, to make decisions sometimes. And so they were counting on the Lord to guide that the, the, that lot, whether it was, whatever it was that they used. Uh, we would compare it to throwing a dice or something like that to come up with a number. But it was something different than that. But it would, it would help them to make a decision when they really didn't sometimes know what to do. And they trusted that the Lord was guiding that decision. And so they chose Matthias and added him to the 11 apostles. But we never hear or see from Matthias again anywhere in all of the scriptures. Matter of fact, his name is only mentioned in those uh, three verses there in Acts chapter 1. And so there's some doubt in people's minds as to whether the church did the right thing by uh, picking Matthias. I can't tell you whether it was right or wrong. I, they prayed and asked God to guide them, and God guided them to this decision. So perhaps he was the right man. But as we look a little bit further, we know that God did handpick another person, and uh, that was the Apostle Paul. Uh, in Acts chapter 9, you can read about Saul's conversion. He went out breathing threatenings and was planning on killing Christians and jailing Christians and stopping Christianity because he was such a fervent Jewish uh, leader. And, uh, and God uh, sent that bright light and blinded him and, and brought him to his knees and and, and Saul submitted himself to the Lord Jesus Christ and accepted him as his Savior. And he became the uh, apostle to the Gentiles. And some people think that Saul was the one who was supposed to replace Judas. I'll leave that up to debate. Uh, both of these men are called apostles in the scriptures. But in Acts chapter uh, 9, verses 15 to 17, we know that the Lord spoke to a man named Ananias, 
who was to disciple and to help and to mentor uh, Saul as he switched over from this fervency in the Jewish faith to becoming a very fervent leader for the cause of Christ and the ministry to the Gentiles. And Acts chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord said to him, Ananias, go, for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, that's something that he never would have called him before, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me. And then Ananias worked with Saul and helped him to uh, get his eyesight back and other things that went on uh, in preparing him for future ministry. Now, the original disciples were all of Jewish descent, and their main ministry was to be apostles to Gentiles. The church began in, I mean, to Jews. The church began in Jerusalem among Jewish believers who gathered there uh, for Pentecost. And uh, that's how it all began. And, and most of those disciples primarily were just working with Jewish people, and the Gentiles were kind of left out of the picture for a time. And, uh, but then we know that God sent the Apostle Paul to work with the Gentiles. First, he told Peter that it was okay to work with the Gentiles, and then Paul became the apostle to the Gentiles. In Romans chapter 11, verse 13, uh, Paul said, I am speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, he said, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So we have the original 12 apostles, and we have Matthias, and we have, uh, have uh, Paul. And those men were basically the apostles. Now those apostles were affirmed by a couple of major qualifications. Number one, they had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Lord. They had to see him physically. In Acts chapter 1, verse 22, when they were choosing out Matthias, that was one of the qualifications that the church chose in their selection of Matthias. They said, these must become a witness with us, the original 12, of his resurrection. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Paul talks about the fact that his apostleship was authenticated by the ability to do miraculous sign gifts. He said, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. We know there were different, different, different miracles that the apostles were able to uh, perform back in the day at the beginning of the church as the church was being founded and beginning to spread throughout the, from Jerusalem throughout the Middle East and later on and to us around the world. So these are specially gifted and called men, and they were called the foundation upon which the New Testament church was built. Of course, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about this. He says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So that's the beginning of some special people that were, that, that were important to the founding and the thriving of the churches. 
Now, the Apostle Paul, the Apostles proclaimed the Gospels, they organized local assemblies of believers, and they enlisted men to become pastors in those fledgling churches. And there's no succession of Apostles. We don't have Apostles today. I remember hearing a man on the radio who called himself Apostle Johnny something, and, uh, and he would get all excited, and he would have somebody read Scripture. He'd say, read, and then he'd make some crazy comments about it. And then he'd say, read, and somebody would read a little bit more, and, and he got the rousements going, but... He really wasn't an apostle. He was just a very excitable preacher. But uh, he was not an apostle. He'd never seen the resurrected Lord himself, and I don't believe that he performed miracles. Now, then there are other people beyond the apostles that were important to the beginning and the founding of the church, and these are the prophets, the New Testament prophets. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets. Now, as the church was being established, they did not have a copy of a leather-bound, uh, gold-leaf Bible like you and I have. They didn't have the, the New Testament. They had the Old Testament, and they could gather principles from that, and they gleaned from that. But then God was inspiring the beginning of the New Testament writings, and the Gospels, and the book of Acts, and all those letters that Paul and John and Peter and others wrote uh, in preparation for us to be able to have those last 27 books that fulfill the canon of Scripture, and these prophets were very important men that God inspired to write down and record the messages they preached, the letters that they wrote, so, so that you and I could know what God is saying, was saying through them for those churches in those days, but it also very much applies to us today. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and verse 21, very famous verses if you've ever studied about the inspiration of Scripture, uh, Peter wrote, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Uh, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's what the prophets did. They were moved by the Holy Spirit to preach and to write and to record and to have their writings preserved for you and me uh, to know the New Testament that Jesus wanted us to, to have. Uh, they were inspired by God with a unique spiritual gift to preach this truth uh, to the fledgling churches, to the masses. And uh, they were very important in the founding of the churches. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, we see that this gift of prophecy, the ability to proclaim God's truth, the words of God, the, the, the being a mouthpiece for deity in those days, as the word of God was being recorded for us, that was, was a very high gift. It was higher than even the gift of tongues that we heard about in Acts chapter 2, uh, where the church where, where that occurred when the church was founded. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, uh, Paul wrote, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies, speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in the tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues even more that you would prophesy, and greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so the church may receive edifying. I appreciated Pastor Kelly trying to read a little bit of that verse from, um, from German but I'm glad that he interpreted for us so that we could understand that he wasn't just speaking in tongues tonight. But 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 says, If there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. 
We don't need them anymore. We have the written word of God. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it'll be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect is come, the perfect God's word that's been recorded, the canon of scripture is closed. When the perfect is come, the partial or the preaching of new revelation of things that hadn't been recorded before in God's word will be done away. So the role of the, of the apostle is no longer with us. And the role of the New Testament prophet is no longer with us. Uh, the role of the prophet and the tongue speaker is no longer necessary because we have the completed written word of God. Thank the Lord that we have that. My wife and I were talking on the way up here. As we were talking, she's studying some law for uh, an exam that she's taking. And she says, it's so hard because the laws are constantly changing. And I said, it's so wonderful that I have my Bible because it never changes. And when I look at it, it tells me what God wants from me. And I can trust this completely because it is the complete and the, the, the full inspired word of God. What a blessing we have that we have a Bible that we can pick up and read and study. And I hope that you're doing that, especially during this time. But then there was another role that was important at the beginning of churches, and it still is being used today at the beginning of churches and to encourage churches today, and that is the gift of the evangelist. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, uh, it says, He gave some as apostles, he gave some as prophets, and some as evangelists. Now, these are men who are specially gifted. I think of Bill Hall. I think of Dave Barba. I think of men like this who are who are very gifted in being able to pre preach God's word. Dave Barba, especially, he's he's involved in the founding of churches all over the place. This is a, he has the ability. It's almost like he can talk to someone immediately, and 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 they they're open to the gospel, and they, many people come to Christ. My brother is an evangelist. My brother Mike and. I've been with him. We had to pick up a truck one time in South Carolina and drive it back to North Carolina one time. And I think he led a guy at a gas station to Christ as we were walking across the parking lot. I don't know how these people do it, but God's given them a special gift to connect and to bring people to a place where they're eager to hear the gospel. Or they just happen to be led to find these people. And uh, God uses them in a great way. Now, in the Bible, there's only one person that I've been able to find who was actually called an evangelist, and uh, that was Philip. Uh, in Acts chapter 21, verse 8, he's called Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven. In Acts chapter 6, there were six. There were seven men who were chosen out, chosen from among the church there in Jerusalem to help take care of the feeding of widows in the church during the, the difficult times. Pastor Kelly talked about that in, the, in his uh, teaching in, in, on Sunday, in uh, the Sunday school hour. And uh, one of those men was Philip, and he's called Philip the Evangelist. And, uh, but Philip is just one among seven in, in when he's first introduced in Acts chapter 6. But in Acts chapter 8, he's more famous for what he did there. In Acts chapter 8, God sent him to Samaria where he preached, and a great number of people came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior because of Philip's preaching. Now, there's a hint here for our deacons now. Once in a while, it would be all right for you to stand up and preach. God used uh, Philip to do that, and a lot of people came to Christ. Maybe God will give you a message that you can share with people that will be used like that. But then God, God sent, by, sent an angel, and, and Philip, instead of just preaching to this big crowd like we think of when we think of an evangelist, God sent him to a specific person. Matter of fact, in the middle of nowhere, in the desert, in Acts chapter 8, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them in verse 5. 
And then in verse 6, the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs of which he was, which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Can you imagine the excitement of the crowds that day as Philip was preaching? A lot of times we have excitement when an evangelist comes around. But then in Acts chapter 8, verse 26, an angel of the Lord spake to Philip and said, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And this is a desert road, not a road where I'd want to go. Reminds me of the road to go to Ironwood Christian Camp. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the Spirit, that's God's Holy Spirit, said to Philip, go and join this chariot. And Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And God used Philip to guide that man to an understanding of what God was saying, prophesying in Isaiah. And he accepted Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. And, and then he was baptized, and, uh, and then Philip was carried away off to another thing. These uh, evangelists, they, they kind of they blow in and blow up and blow out, but God uses them, and we're grateful for them. And uh, God used Philip in that way. Uh, Dean Taylor uh, was quoting from a man named John Eady in a commentary on the epistle to the Ephesians. And he says, it seems that evangelists are especially gifted with preaching the gospel effectively and bringing new assemblies of believers into existence. John Eady describes them as being furnished with clear perceptions of saving truth and possessed of wondrous power in recommending it to others. Now, we've all been called to be evangelists to a certain extent. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus said to them, to us, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. We've been called to that. But there's some who are actually gifted, some people who are gifted in that manner. Timothy was not called to be an evangelist. Timothy was called to be a preacher. But he was exhorted by the Apostle Paul to do the work of an evangelist, just like I'm exhorting you to do the work of an evangelist, whether you've been called to be one or not. And just find a way to get a little gospel truth to somebody. But then God may bring somebody else along who repeats what you have said. That's oftentimes what an evangelist does. I've, I've been in situations where the preacher get up and he's been preaching from a certain chapter, and then an evangelist will come in and he'll preach from the exact same chapter, say almost the exact same thing, but people will respond to the evangelist when they didn't respond to the pastor. I don't understand it, but I know God does that. Um, but 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So Timothy was more of a pastor, but God wanted him to do the work of an evangelist. And uh, so but we have been gifted with these people who are kind of the... They, we call them the establishers. That's what, that's what we call them in our, in our outline here today. The, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. They're kind of the basis. Uh, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. But they're the, they're the founders of the churches. And a lot of times today, these evangelists, they have this great gift, and they go into a foreign country, and they, they start churches. That's what some of our missionaries are doing. Um, I think of Brother Redding that goes on to the Philippines and all those things that he does there. And I think of others uh, here, even here in the United States, some right now in San Francisco who are starting churches in their living rooms, like, like our church was started in the living room 
a hundred and some years ago. Uh, they're gifted in that way. We thank the Lord for these apostles and prophets and evangelists. But now we're going to look at another person, group of people, another gift that's been given to the church that I think is very important. And uh, and I'm, I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm going to kind of step out of the whole thing and just say, Pat, do you understand that pastors are a gift to local church? Do you understand the importance of that? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says, He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. They're equippers. They're equippers. If you've ever been in a church that doesn't have a pastor, you know how important a pastor is. I have been blessed. I've never been a part of a church that did not have a pastor. Uh, there have been times when there have been I've been involved in a church that didn't have a pastor, and I went in to help them for a time and help them while they were getting a pastor. And I, and I love to help a church like that. But they need a pastor, a, a, someone who is the shepherd, someone who is the, 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 the elder in the church, someone who is there to, to help and guide that church and to equip every one of the saints in the local church to accomplish what God has called them to do. Do you ever wonder what a pastor does all week long? Uh, I was talking to, uh, to one of our men even last night, and he mentioned, he goes, yeah, I'm, my son used to say, I don't want to be a pastor because all I do is lay around and preach once in a while. I said, I think there's more to it than that. You've got to understand that. You may suspect that all a pastor does is get up and speak maybe three to five, but work three to five hours a week when he gets up and preach, uh, preaches, depending on how long he is. Um, and, uh, and, 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 but, it, but it's a whole lot more than that. Uh, they're a lot busier than that. They, of course, they do, we do spend a great deal of time studying and preparing for our messages. We want to be accurate and true to the Word of God, and it takes a lot of time. We study the Word. We, sometimes we break the words apart. We sometimes we go back to original languages, all these things, and try to understand it. We look up what other people have said about the passage. We pray about it and ask God to guide us. But there's also counseling that goes on, and there is visiting sick people. We've been trying to keep up with some through the Internet because we can't actually visit them right now. Thank the Lord for the technology that we have available right now. They're involved in witnessing to lost souls. We're, we're involved in praying. We're involved in, in sometimes just doing the administrative work. We have to go to staff meetings. We have to go to other meetings. Sometimes we have to go to deacons meetings. Sometimes we go to meetings with meetings. And it seems like there's a lot of meetings involved in pastoring. Uh, we have to organize activities. We've got to work with personnel. We've got to do church services. Sometimes we have to oversee the buildings. And we may not always do the work, though sometimes we do have to unplug a toilet once in a while. Uh, but we, we have to do work or call in an, uh, a, a contractor or, or, or call in a group of volunteers to change light bulbs or whatever we have to do and try to keep people from falling off scaffolding. We have all these things that we have to do to work on in order to keep the church going, and that doesn't include the legal aspect of it all. So there's a lot to this thing of pastoring. And uh, many pastor responsibilities are not taught in seminary. Uh, we kind of catch those along the way because we didn't know what to do. And, and especially in these changing times, my goodness, I, we were watching, I was watching with wonder as Pastor Kelly and Deb were working on the on how to get us on tonight when we were having all this trouble with the technology. I looked at Pastor and said, I don't know how they do what they do, but I'm glad they do. And uh, they weren't sure they were going to do it anyway, but it still got done. At least we're here for now. But uh, Dean Taylor, the guy who wrote this book, The Thriving Church, 
uh, opened up this whole chapter with a really interesting uh, observation from a blog by Tom Rayner, who writes and uh, blogs for pastors and writes books about pastoring and things like that. And uh, one of the things, one of the blogs that he wrote was about how many hours must a pastor work each week to satisfy his congregation. He did a study in his local church in July of 2013. Uh, and in the article, he describes an experiment he conducted when he was pastor. And uh, he surveyed his deacons to determine the number of hours they expected him to devote to the ministry work every week. And each of the 12 deacons gave him the minimum amount that they thought he should spend in areas such as prayer, sermon preparation, counseling, evangelism, visits, administration, church meetings, worship services. And the tally resulted in a total of 114 hours a week. Now, if he took one day off a week, he worked for the church 19 hours a day. Now, you know nobody can do that. But pastors do put in a great deal of time and a great deal of effort in trying to accomplish these things and balance all of these things out. Now, what are the roles and qualifications for pastors? And we're going we're gonna to stop at, at this part rather than going on to the third point. We'll just get into that next week when we come back together. But I want you to understand the, the, the gift that a pastor is to your local church. You need to know this. You need to understand this, and you need to respect and honor this. The roles and qualifications of pastors. Pastors are called by several names in the scriptures. Pastor, teacher, shepherd, overseer, bishop, elder. There may be others. Those are some that came to my mind. A pastor is really an under-shepherd uh, who is commissioned to watch over the local flock that Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, has the chief shepherd has put under his control and under his watch care. Now, the Lord Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the ultimate shepherd. Pastors are all working to help him with shepherding and working with the people within the church. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it says, Be on guard for yourselves. This is an admonition to pastors. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Pastors all understand, good pastors understand, that the people in his church are not his people, they're God's people. And we're just here to help accomplish what God wants to be accomplished through those people in this particular community, in particular area. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, uh, again, Peter admonishes the pastors, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. A good pastor works hard to set an example, but he also works hard to care for the people in his church and to bring his sheep to the best spiritual condition they can be in before they can be presented to the good shepherd, the ultimate good shepherd, Jesus Christ, when, he, when they'll go home to heaven to be with him. He, his job is, the pastor often says this, our, my job is to help you get safely home. And that's what, that's what a good pastor, it's what a good shepherd does. Pastor, pastoral qualifications are clearly spelled out in the scriptures. I'll let you look at those in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And that's what you should be looking for. If you're in a situation, some of you I know have been watching and you're in a situation where you're looking for a pastor. Let me encourage you to really study 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 and those qualifications when you go to looking for and selecting a new pastor for your church. Now, what are the responsibilities of pastors? 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, kind of the key verses we've got for this entire lesson. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. I think that's a pastor-teacher. That's a combination. And, and what the purpose is found in verse 12. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Pastors have been called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, the work of service. What does it mean to equip? You can look up the word, and I won't go into all the all the details of that, but basically what it's saying is, is to put something right. It's to restore it to its original condition. It's to reset a broken bone. I remember breaking his arm as a boy. They reset that. They got that thing right. It works pretty good right now, and I'm thankful for what they did. Every once in a while when it gets cold, I feel it, but it, it happened a long time ago. But anyway, so a doctor comes in and resets a broken bone. Pastors come in and reset broken hearts and broken lives. You have to repair, it's, it's to repair a weathered ship that's been battered by years on the sea. Sometimes people have been Christians a long time, and they've taken a lot of hits for their service in the Lord. And, and a pastor comes along and encourages them and try to fills the gap and helps them get back into uh, working shape uh, so that they can be faithful and serve and continue to serve until the Lord calls them home. It's to mend a net that is frazzled from use. Gospel messages to go out, and sometimes we take a hit while we're trying to bring people into the fold, trying to bring in the fish, bring in the souls, and uh, we take a beating with that. And sometimes, like Peter and Paul, we have to stop and mend a few nets to make sure that some don't slip through the holes. So there's a lot that pastors have to do. It's, it's a restoration. It's a healing. It's a training. It's a preparation. It's, it's all these things, helping the, the people in his church to become all that God wants them to be. Now, in order to be able to do this spiritually, a pastor has to know God's Word. He's got to know what the Bible says, and he's got to spend a great deal of time there. It's the bread and butter of being a good pastor. Uh, Dean Taylor wrote this, through studying the Bible and serving for 25 years in pastoral ministry, I've arrived at what I believe are the three primary responsibilities of a pastor. They include the ministry of the word, both public and personal, spiritual care for the people, and leadership and oversight of the church. A pastor is constantly working to balance these things out, spending the appropriate amount of time doing each of these different responsibilities as, uh, as, a, as, a, as the leader in the church. But I want to look at sermon preparation for just a minute with you. I want you to understand something about this. I hope that you respect and honor a pastor who does a good job of sermon preparation. I know I appreciate very much Pastor Innes and his ministry. Someone has described sermon preparation as being similar to trying to keep up with the waves of the sea. You get the one wave comes in, you think that one's done, and oh, there comes another one. Oh, you got to get another one. Oh, you got to deal with another one. And that's kind of the way it is with sermon preparation. I finish up on Wednesday night and immediately start preparing for the next service when I get to preach and doing some other things in the, in the meantime. And I know that this is something that's always in the back of the minds of pastors. I, I meet with a lot of pastors. I talk with a lot of pastors. And they tell me they love preaching, but it is constant and it never goes away. Knowing, knowing that you have one more message to preach and it's never done as long as you're here. Uh, sermon preparation is like writing a term paper. If you've written a term paper, you know how hard that is. And, uh, and every sermon or term paper that a pastor reads gets graded every time. Um, sometimes the best, best knowledge of how well he's doing is about the number of people who are actually showing up to hear him preach again. You grade him every time you show up. 
but um, and your and your presence is is how you vote to keep your pastor. Do you understand that? So being at church is very important. It helps your pastor to know that he's accomplishing something. And so, but every sermon is going to be graded by the people who hear it, and every sermon is going to be tested by the Lord Himself. And pastors are going to one day have to give an account for every word that they speak, because we are speaking as a mouthpiece for deity. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, one of those verses Pastor read tonight, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. It, it, they're speaking the very words of God. This is what we're trying to get across. We're not trying to preach our ideas or our philosophy or something we read out of a magazine someplace. We're trying to tell you what God has said. That's what a good preacher does. That's what a good pastor does. It's not about three points in a poem. It's what has God said and what is going to help our people to be faithful to the Word of God? It's an awesome privilege to speak and to preach on the behalf of the Lord. If God calls you to do it, you'll love it. But don't do it because you enjoy it. Some people like to do it. Some people want to be preachers just because they like to talk. That's not a motivation for being a preacher. You need to be a lover of the Word. You need to be a lover of the Lord. And you need to know that a call to preach is a call to study and to prepare I got one young man I'm working on trying to get him to study and prepare because I think God's giving him uh, maybe a nudge to consider preaching. And, uh, the, but we need to be students of the word, pastors. The apostles emphasized the importance of a pastor's Bible study and prayer very early in the life of the church. In Acts chapter 6, when they called out those seven deacons, uh, they had those widows that needed to be taken care of. And there were some arguments going on in the church about who should get food and who should not get food and that sort of thing. And the apostles got together and said, choose you seven men, and we're going to put them over that business. And then it says in Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That is what a pastor needs to really make as the priority of his ministry. You've got to be careful to budget his time to make sure that that happens. Oh, listen, if you go by your pastor's office and the door is closed, He's probably in there studying. He's probably in there praying. Don't bother him. Maybe, maybe make a call, drop a note, say, I'd like to speak with you sometime. But be patient and understand. He's got to put that time aside so that he can prepare and, and be able to preach. And, it, you know, a church is blessed when a pastor is committed to that ministry of preaching. I remember going into one pastor's study, and he had one desk that was just very neat and clean and very nice, and everything was outright, and everything was in perfect, perfect place. That was where he met with his people. But then there was a door off to the side, and he went in the back, and he kind of a closet over there. It was full of books, and there were piles of paper here, piles of paper there, and that's where he did his studying. And he was he spent a great deal of time in there, uh, so that he could prepare and preach the, the uh, for uh, the times when he was in front of his people. In First Timothy chapter five verse seventeen, the elders or pastors or shepherds or leaders who rule well, are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, if you have a good pastor, be sure to respect him and the work that he does on your, on your behalf. Dean Taylor wrote this. He said, the pastor contributes to the growth of the church by equipping the saints. Responsibility for growing the church falls on both the pastors and the members. But both have their own set of ways to contribute to the church's growth. Problems come when one group expects the other to do everything or most things. 
And I'm just going to touch on this. This is the third group. We had the establishers, and now we have the equippers or the pastors. But you know there's the equipped saints who are a very important part of the church. And each one of us has been given this responsibility. And I'm just going to touch on this, and I want you to get this. In the King James, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, there's a little comma that's always been a bother to me. And as I understand it by looking at other translations and doing a lot of study, that little comma really doesn't necessarily need to be there. It says he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That little comma doesn't need to be there because the work of the pastor's job is to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry. I actually have had some people say to me, when I encourage them to go out and evangelize, when I encourage them to get involved in the work of the local church, I've actually heard some people say, well, isn't that what we hired you to do, the work of the ministry? That little comma makes it look like the pastors are to perfect the saints, the pastors are to do the work of the ministry, the pastors are to edify the body of Christ. No, no, no. We're all supposed to be doing those things, and the pastors are to equip all of us to accomplish that purpose together. We'll get into that next week. But I want to close with this. I want to ask you, first of all, are you a Christian? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? You're, you're never going to benefit from the local church until you know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. It's just going to be another social club for you to go to. It's going to be another set of rules for you to keep. But you will really benefit from a local church if you are a true believer because the Holy Spirit is going to bear Bring your spirit with other people's spirit, other Christian spirits, and, and you will find great blessing in the Word of God. It won't just be something that you do to fulfill a duty. It's going to be a place where you feel at home like part of the family because you are part of the family of God. And so you need to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. But if you are a Christian, and many of you are, have you found what your gift is? Have you committed yourself to this idea of thriving and growing in a local church? It takes all of us to do it. Yes, we have this foundation of Jesus Christ. We have the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists. And we have these great equippers. But all of us have our part to play in the ministry of the local church. I hope that you found your role. And I hope that you're following your pastor as he tries to draw the group together to accomplish what God wants done in our community in our local church, and if you're not from our church, in your local church. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and what it speaks to us and what it says to us. Thank you, Lord, for this, uh, this understanding of, of the foundation upon which all churches are built, these apostles and these prophets and evangelists, and of course the Lord Jesus Christ who died to save us all. But Lord, I pray that you help us to understand the value of our pastors, to honor them, to respect them, to love them, to follow them, to understand that they are here for our good, for our, our blessing, uh, for our preparation for ministry so that we can fulfill our role. And Lord, help us to not just be spectators in the ministry, but to all be a part of the ministry. Help us next week as we get together to continue in this study, to find our role and to be actively involved as you would have us to be for your honor and glory for the cause of Christ and for the evangelizing of the world. Accomplish your will through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.